All right, everyone, let's take our seats if you haven't yet, and uh, we'll put our conversations on pause and prepare now to hear God's Word proclaimed. Our sweet morning together becomes all the more sweet because God will speak to us today through His Word. And so let's come now expecting that He'll meet us and that He'll use uh, His Word uh, to, to do a work, to change, to grow, to make even more rich and beautiful and vibrant our life together here as a church. And so this morning we open up the Gospel of Mark and we continue on in our journey with Jesus, asking the question that we have been asking all along, who is Jesus? And seeking to apply that answer to every aspect of our lives. And as we do, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, verse 1. Mark 12, verse 1, we'll be reading this morning verses 1 through 12, a story known to us commonly as the parable of the tenants. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias al Evangelio de Marcos, capítulo 12, versículo 1 a 12. Parábola de los labradores malvados. In this passage, it begins in verse 1, picking up right where 1133 ends. Jesus is still locked in the exact same scene of conflict with the religious authorities of Israel who have questioned and challenged his authority. That's still where we are as we enter into this text this morning, so the chapter break between 11 and 12 is somewhat artificial there. We're right in the thick of it as we approach the text today. The chief priests, the scribes and the elders, the members of of the Sanhedrin, that is the highest Jewish ruling body in that day. Last week, we had left off with them having feigned ignorance um, and failed to answer Jesus' question about John's baptism, the question regarding his authority. But Jesus, he won't let them off the hook that easily. In response to this challenge of his authority, Jesus today goes on the offensive, and he challenges their authority by speaking a parable to them. So without any further ado this morning, let's read the parable before us and listen in to the response of Jesus' opponents. Beginning in verse 1, let's read together God's word and then pray briefly for his help. Mark writes, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, He sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. These are God's words. Let's pray for the help of God's Spirit. Oh Lord, we thank you this morning that you have gathered us according to your grace, and now as we come to the reading and the receiving of your word, that you, Lord, delight to meet us according to your grace. And we pray that you would do just that, that you would use the word as it has gone forth to do a work in our hearts, such that, Jesus, we would see you, who you are, what you have come to do, and all that that means for us, all the more clear, to the end that you would be glorified, to the end that we would be lifted up and built up and encouraged in you, to the end that we would be fueled up for lives of faithfulness together in this church, in our families, in our places of work, and in our city. Lord, would you now, in this time, meet us through the proclamation of your word and send your spirit to help us, to help me speak and to explain and to make clear, to help us all to listen and to apply and to have hearts that are opened to what you would want to say to us today. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, what we've just read is a very uh, unique parable in the Gospel of Mark. We've read parables before, back in chapter 4 of the Gospel of Mark, but this one is kind of same, kind of different in some regards. Uh, parables, as we recall, but to give us a little refresher, maybe if you don't remember that, which was some many months ago now, back in chapter 4, parables were stories, right, taken from everyday life that were designed to teach some kind of spiritual truth. That's the basic definition. More particularly, though, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' parables, they were stories which he told to reflect the nature of the kingdom that he was bringing, and to, uh, you know, not just give information, but to compel those who heard to respond in the proper sort of way to the coming of that kingdom. This parable, like all the others, uh, takes a scene from first century life, um, and it makes use of it to assert who Jesus is, what he's come to do, and this morning, can't miss this, and in so doing, warns all those who hear of the fate that would await those who do not receive him as he is. It has a big function for us this morning. It's a parable which is additionally unique, as we've read it, um, in that it's the most allegorical of all Jesus' parables. Typically, the parables don't have every single detail representing some other level and layer of meaning. Uh, but in this case, this is a more so allegorical parable in that all the details are very significant. Every bit of this story maps on and matches onto something Christ would want us to lay a hold of to understand it rightly. And speaking to that, there's a certain clarity in this parable in the way that it's gone forth and is designed, that is also a bit different from how the previous ones have gone. If we recall earlier in Mark's gospel, Jesus spoke in parables to do what? To really show who was in and who was out. The function of the parables to those outside was that in that they didn't understand and didn't receive, they were proven to be outside of the kingdom. But here today, as Jesus even speaks to his opponents, this parable is different because it is not designed to conceal right, that truth, the mystery of the kingdom of God, but rather to reveal that truth to those very opponents who would be on the outside. 
And so we have a parable unique in its allegory and its clarity to those who are outside. And finally, we have a parable unique, and I want us to miss this morning, in, in its content. Content which really amounts to what we could say is a fourth prediction of the passion of Christ. That is, it's a parabolic foretelling, if, if we caught it, if we have uh, ears to hear this morning, of the death and the resurrection of the Messiah. That will take place in Jerusalem in just a few days' time from which he spoke it. This is during Holy Week, right? Uh, as he is approaching his death and resurrection, this parable foretells that. And it's a unique story indeed. And lest we think that's not so exciting, another prediction of Christ's death and resurrection, you know, because we've already heard it three times in Mark, and we're already quite clear as the reader of Mark that this will happen, consider these uh, couple of points here that set this apart from the previous three foretellings. Number one, this foretelling, and we have to grab the gravity and the drama of this in this story, this foretelling is publicly given to his opponents also before a crowd, in the temple, right? This is public, this is auspicious, this is happening, not in a corner, as opposed to the preceding three predictions which were given in private to his disciples. This is public. This is out there. Christ has come. He's walking in the temple. He's cleansed it. He said, this is my house, and he's telling everyone now that the Messiah will suffer, but then be raised. Second, this parable is unique in that it not only predicts his death and resurrection, but it actually moves the plot forward toward that climax uh, in the story. And we'll see this in our text this morning, in that as we already read, getting a bit of ahead of ourselves, in verse 12, we saw the response of his opponents. It wasn't repentance. It was doubling down on opposition. The only reason they didn't seize upon him in that moment was because it wasn't expedient for them. The crowds were there. They were afraid of what the crowds might think, what the crowds might do, but they were very much resolved to do what they had planned to do, to do exactly what Jesus predicted and prophesied in the parable. This parable moves the ball forward, moves the plot toward its climax of death and resurrection. And finally, I want, to, want us to seize upon this as well this morning. This, this parable is unique and it's helpful uh, to us today because we've already had the meaning of, of Christ's death uh, previously explained and kind of opened up to us in Mark 10, verse 45, right? The Son of Man uh, would come not to be served, but to serve and to do what? To give his life as a ransom for many. We've been given an, a window into what the cross would accomplish. Um, this parable is noteworthy in that um, it not only, yes, predicts the coming um, death, but also the resurrection of Jesus. And it sheds further light as to what it means for him and for us. And so the emphasis will really strike this morning is on that resurrection. Um, and as we approach Resurrection Sunday in just a few weeks, um, this parable and the text we'll read next Sunday as we come together, it will teach us more about the resurrection hope that we have and more about what was accomplished that first Easter Sunday morning. And so suffice it to say, there's a lot happening <laughs> in this passage. There's a lot going on here in these 12 verses. But in one sense, all that's happening really revolves around and boils down to just one big question. Last Sunday, we heard that Jesus' authority is good news for those who submit to it. And this is wonderfully true. It is good news for us. This Sunday, we advance this discussion by asking the question, 
But how do we know Jesus is the authority? How do we know Jesus is the authority he claims to be, that we confess him to be? Because he can say it, and up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, he's, he's said it clearly, both in, in showing right, and in telling. He's said it. He can say it. He can say he's God's son. But in what way is this shown to be true and proven to us? And now I know on one hand, and we even heard about this last Sunday, uh, there's more than one way to answer this question, right? For up to this point in Mark, Jesus, he's done miracles. He's taught like no others have taught. And yes, I'll concede this. He's even been declared to be the Christ by his followers and even the Son of the Father by God himself in his baptism and at the transfiguration, the latter uh, two events which were more private, right, in nature than public. Um, Yet, though, we come to this scene here and we come to this series of controversies in the temple, and guess what? His authority is still rejected. Where are we to look, then, for the ultimate proof of his authority, his divine messianic authority as the Son of God, the one that shuts the mouths of his opponents and proves beyond a shadow of a doubt, whether anyone would want to accept it or not, doesn't matter, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, the true temple and dwelling place of God and man. And the answer that presents itself in our text today is this. Where's the proof? In the resurrection of the Son. The resurrection is the proof of Jesus' authority. And that's the the one main idea, the one and only point, the big conclusion this text drives us toward today. The resurrection is the proof of Jesus' authority. The Apostle Paul, he makes the same argument that we're making now at the beginning of his letter to the Romans, writing this. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was, listen to this, declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by what? His resurrection from the dead. Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's Romans 1, 1 through 4. What Paul summarizes at the beginning of his letter, it will become increasingly clear to us as we reach the end of our text this morning that Christ's resurrection is the proof of his authority, which is the question, right, in consideration here in this scene. This resurrection proves his authority, and with that, a secondary point also follows, though, right? If it proves Jesus' authority, it proves something else, then, about his opponents. It's going to go both ways. (laughs) The secondary point that follows upon that is that the resurrection, then, also proves the end, the removal, and the rejection of the Jewish leader's authority. What was symbolized in the cursing of the fig tree, right, what was symbolized in the cleansing of the temple is is further interpreted and fleshed out for us today in the form of this parable. If Christ is the authority, then they must not be the authority. There is a new location, right, for where we could look to concentrate and to center God and his authority, God and his presence, God and his authoritative workings and dealings and speaking with his people. 
And the argument of this text is that it's found in Jesus. <laughs> and we know this because he was raised from the dead. And so here's where the argument uh, is headed when it comes to those opponents, those leaders. And we're kind of jumping into the end, and then we'll get into the weeds a little bit, but this is where we're headed today. Um, in the moment that these guys, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, right, they heard the parable, it's not likely that they would understand, right, all we understand now, <laughs> um, or what the early church made of it after Christ spoke these words, and they saw everything in the light of the cross and resurrection. It's not likely the opponents hear Christ saying what he's saying in this parable and know about his resurrection per se, right? Um, what they do know is this, though. They have a plan already. We know this in Mark. <laughs> to kill and destroy Jesus. We saw that last week in Mark 11, verse 18. After the temple cleansing, they want to do what? Destroy him. And they already wanted to do that back in chapter 3, verse, uh, I think it's 6 as well. They want to destroy him. They already want to get rid of him. They've concluded already that he's a blasphemer. He's a criminal. And he's not at all what he claims to be. Yet, this parable, as they hear it, it indicates two things, which would undoubtedly be astounding to them. And here's the drama of this text. This parable indicates, number one, that Jesus is well aware of this. <laughs> he is aware of their plot and their plans against him. And number two, that he's confident that in some way, somehow, this death that they plan for him, it will be reversed and overturned. <laughs> they, may not, they may not know how, they may not know why, they may not be able to explain it, but hearing this parable, they would see his utter confidence that their plan would fail, that some way, somehow, their rejection would be overruled, would be overturned. And the soon-to-occur resurrection of Jesus would be the very thing which would seal the deal upon this. The resurrection would be the proof of Jesus' authority and the proof of their non-authority. And so this morning, this is the point of the whole parable for us. We'll spend the rest of our time together walking through the parable and as uh, we do sort of building back up to this conclusion, proving it as we go along and then drawing out a few implications of it for our lives. Very simple goal this morning. And so without further ado, let's dive into the weeds of this parable and follow the storyline to this grand conclusion. And so beginning in verse 1, looking at our text. Jesus is addressing those who were given charge of leading God's people under, this is important to note, under God's delegated authority, not their own. He's telling them a parabolic story to give them and his appraisal, right, of how they've used or abused the authority that they've been given and how God plans to respond to that. And so let's listen in, beginning in verse 1. It says, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the winepress, and built a tower, and leased it to the tenants, and went to another country. And what's being described here is a sort of absentee land-owning that was a very common practice in Jesus' day. Uh, he's drawing upon a very common occurrence, and he's utilizing it here to make a theological point. And as he does so, he tells a story for us, and which, as I mentioned earlier, every detail is representative of God's relationship to and his history with the people of Israel. That's what's being uh, symbolized here. And we know this because we have reason to believe this because the beginning of the parable provides us with a very clear reference to a passage in Isaiah chapter 5, particularly Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, if you guys want to go read that 
later on during the week. But this passage and this allusion, it serves as the interpretive key for understanding the allegory that Christ is presenting here. Back in Isaiah chapter 5, God is portrayed as the owner of a vineyard, which in, the par- in that passage back in Isaiah, it represents the people of Israel. So we have God the owner, Israel the vineyard, God is the one who has planted them, protected them, and tended to them with patient care. Yet, back in Isaiah's day, they are about to be judged for their lack of fruitfulness and faithfulness. Does that remind you of uh, chapter 11? Lack of fruitfulness, lack of faithfulness. And Jesus, he seizes upon this passage. But in the story he tells, significantly different, he shifts the focus from God's dealings with his people directly to his dealings with the tenant farmers who represent for us the religious leaders and the temple authorities of the day. So he's using that same scene and backdrop, but the focus is shifted not toward a judgment of the people at large, but toward a judgment upon those who were given the land to work it. And so in this parable, the vineyard the man had planted was placed in the care of these tenants. They don't own the vineyard, this is important to note, but they're the stewards of what the man has given to them. It was their job to protect it, to cultivate it, and to promote its fruitfulness. They had an agreement, a legal, contractual, covenantal, we could say, agreement with the owner, and they would be expected to pay rent upon that land uh, in keeping with the terms of their lease when the owner came to collect what was rightfully his. And so that's what's happening here as we get into verse 2, which reads, When the season, that is the appointed time of that lease agreement, came, he sent a servant. And in the history of Israel, this would refer to a prophet, a prophet being one who spoke God's words to God's people. And prophets who, as if we know our Old Testament storyline well, who were kind of God's you know, covenant enforcers. They would come on the scene when things were getting out of hand, and they would say, hey guys, remember what we agreed to? Remember the promises God has made to us and the, the promises we made to him? Remember what his law has given toward, to us as a model, as a pathway toward faithfulness and blessing and life in the land, the prophets would come and point people back to God's word, toward his covenant, and call the people to keep it with faithfulness and repent when they needed to. And so it says that the owner sent a servant representing the prophets, right? And he sent his servant to the tenants to get from them some fruit of the vineyard. And he sent uh, his servant to go collect the fruit that the vineyard should have yielded, right? The time has passed. There should be something there for me. So he sends them. And as we hear the word fruit, we're reminded again of the fig tree, of what Christ has just come and done symbolically in cursing it for its fruitlessness. Um, And now in this parable, the servant, he comes to check on the fruitfulness of the land and to bring its produce back to the owner um, per the contract that they have in place. Uh, But what will he find upon coming to the tenants? What response will he be met with as he comes to receive his due? Look with me at verse 3. How did the tenants receive him instead of welcoming him as a proper expression uh, and extension of welcoming the owner of the vineyard? It says they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. As biblical scholar C.H. Dodds comments on this, he says, the tenants farmer, the tenant farmers rather, pay their rent in blows. <laughs> they pay their rent in blows. They not only withhold the rent that they owe him, But in effect, they challenge the owner of the vineyard to enforce the payment if he can. They say, you want it? Come and get it. (laughs) Because we're sending your guy away empty-handed. We're not going to pay up unless you make us. And this here, 
This is meant to shock and astound us today and the hearers back then, right? The authorities being addressed, the crowds who were actively listening in, all of us today, we're meant to see that these tenants, it's unambiguous, they're completely in the wrong. <laughs> what kind of farmers would treat the landowner in this way? This is audacious. This is unwarranted. This is downright illegal, what they're doing. They're total, totally in breach of contract. This behavior is plainly worthy of condemnation. Servants and prophets came, and they were not welcomed. They were not heeded. So what did the owner do? Well, very mercifully, if we look at verse 4, mercifully, withholding the contract-breaking judgment they deserved, verse 4 says, again, he sent to them another servant. <laughs> Yet, as merciful as that was, it only seems in the story to get worse. The owner sent another servant to the vineyard, and they, the tenants, the lessees, the stewards of the land, struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And in that, there's an increasing sort of mistreatment that is uh, depicted here. From the lack of hospitality to the beating and empty-handed send-off to now this violence and this outright mockery of the servant who has come this time around. The stewards are increasingly responding to the master's servants with contempt for them. But the owner of the vineyard continues to send servants to this land, as verse 5 and following indicates. He patiently persists in his dealing with the wicked tenants. And this has got to cause us to think, church. This vineyard must be valuable to him, right? It must be valuable to him because he hasn't given up on it yet. He still continues to send his servants toward it, even though they're being treated and received as such. But just as his long-suffering persists, so does the tenant's hostility toward his messengers. The rejection, it reaches new heights as this time around in verse 5, they kill the one who was sent to them. In the parable, it continues this way, um, by way of summary to explain that this happened for some time after that. Servants came, they were beaten, they were rejected. As verse 5 says, some they beat and some they killed. The master continued to, uh, continued to patiently and persistently reach out to these people to try to get the fruit that was his due, and he didn't give up on his vineyard, even though his messengers were poorly treated. And this history of rejection, as we know Israel's history continued on and on for hundreds of years until it reached its ultimate climax. And this is what we see in verse 6. For after all these prophets had come, after all these warnings had gone unheeded, after the calls to repent hadn't produced repentance among these leaders, and there were still bad shepherds in the land, it says that there was still one other in verse 6 a beloved son. The master still had one he could send to this vineyard. And mind you now, as we are in this story, and the master is God, we've seen that from the context of the quotation of Isaiah, what does that make the son? The son of God himself. Christ is clearly putting this out to his opponents. If the master is God, then this son is God's own son. He still has this one he can send. And at this point, if we're tracking along with the drama in, in the story as it's unfolding, we would probably be asking along with commentator James Edwards, 
What farmer in his right mind would surrender his son to such tenants? Why would he do this? If it's already gone so badly, why? Who? What farmer in his right mind would do this? What could the dogged persistence um, toward this vineyard, what could it suggest about the owner's character? What could it suggest about the owner's heart? Think about this as we consider the sending of this beloved son. Think about the patience of God toward his people then, toward us now, how he persists with our unfaithfulness. He persists with our struggling against him. He persists even with our rejection. He persists when his people, his church, is in disarray. He persists. He patiently sins one and then another. He persistently comes to meet them. He persistently comes to check for fruit, not destroying the vineyard, but trying to preserve it. Think of the patience of God in your life. Even as we celebrate new members today and new baptisms after this, consider the patience of God in your life as he preserved you when you were going the opposite way, as you were right in league with the tenant farmers, rejecting every advance, rejecting all the prophets, rejecting the gospel, and God persisted with you. And he came and he came and he came again in spite of your rejection, even though you deserved the same penalty of these contract breakers he persisted toward you, and he brought you near to him. We see the patience of God in the gospel on display in this text, in the history of Israel. And would that move us to be patient with one another? <laughs> to be patient when we are sinned against and offended? To be patient when we are misunderstood? To be patient when we come to small group and it's the same prayer request as last time and they didn't heed your counsel? <laughs> to be patient when things just aren't developing maybe with relationships within the church the way you had hoped they might. Patient with our, our spouses when change in them is hard to come by in a slow progress. Patient with our kids when they, like we to God, ask for help with the same thing <laughs> time after time after time. And we, much more quickly than God, grow tired in, in stooping to meet their need. Would God's patience move us toward a gospel patience with one another, knowing how much he's long suffered with us for us. So consider the patience of God in sending this son, the grace of God in sending his son. That's what's mainly meant to be depicted in the farmer sending this son. As unbelievable as it sounds, so unbelievable, the point is, is his grace toward us. But additionally, within the parable and what's happening here, there's also a, a second answer we could give to the question being posed. Why would he in his right mind send this son, knowing what might happen? Why send your son after all the servants have suffered? Because, and this is important to note, this son, he could legally represent the father to the tenants in a way that no other servant could do, right? He has got a special identity, a special status that they just don't have. As Edwards comments again, he says, this is why the owner says, they will respect my son. The son goes as the father's representative, with the father's authority, to the father's property, to claim the father's due. He is a beloved son who, in other words, fully represents the father to them. He is the owner's final messenger. He is the last word in this conversation. 
After him, there will be no more. Such that the fate of the tenant, it hangs in the balance of how they will respond to this son. This is the critical moment. Because to deny him is to deny the owner himself. To reject him is to reject God himself. This is the critical and urgent moment that the story is drawing us into here. And as Jesus speaks this parable to his opponents, he's clearly, right, identifying himself in this role. What was announced at his baptism and announced again at his transfiguration is now, from being in private then, is now going very public. He is identifying himself with this beloved son sent of the Father with authority. He's making this point clear. He's answering the question, by what authority do you do this? By God's own authority. Answering that question for us. He is the beloved son of God being sent into the world. And the ultimate question for the authorities back then, and truly the ultimate question for everybody, then becomes, this being the case, will you receive the beloved son who was sent? Will you receive him? There are no further messengers to come. There are no other ways that exist of getting to God and enjoying life in his vineyard. The very son has come. And now everyone, every image bearer of God who comes into this world, each of us in this room, everyone must receive him or, as we'll see in moments, receive the consequences that come from rejecting him. It's the only two ways it can go, not that the son has come. And Jesus is developing this. But continuing on with our story, we return to verse 6 and we read this. That finally, he, the owner, sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. Surely, the owner thinks, and in the parable is representing, surely they will receive him, my beloved son. Surely their rejection and rebellion against me won't go so far and won't go so deep as to reject my very son. But it gets worse. And in verses 7 and 8, we see that this is precisely what the tenants did. As astounding as it was, as unimaginable as it was, as insidious and rebellious and awful as it was, even this one was rejected. When the tenants heard that he had come, the son, they conspired together and said, this is the heir, in verse 7, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. In other words, they say, this is it, guys. (laughs) He's the last thing standing in our way. Once he's gone, the vineyard is ours. We go from being stewards to being masters. And applying this motivation, right, this desire that's in them, applying it to the human heart and toward our sinful nature, right, in general. Edwards, again, he fittingly comments. He says, if humanity, listen to this, can dispense with God, or even kill God, then humanity can become God. And what the tenants are expressing here is that very desire. If we get him out of the way, we become as he is, which is going back to the false promise in the very beginning in that first garden of God. Back in Genesis 3 and Eden, when Satan came to Adam and to Eve, and he said, did he really say not to eat this? Did he really say this would happen to you? Surely, He doesn't want you to eat of the fruit of the tree because then what? You'll become like God's. And he doesn't want that for you. He wants to hold you down. He wants to hold you back. 
and Satan comes to them then, and our sin comes to us even now with the temptation. Throw off God's rule. Eat from the tree and become like God's yourselves. You don't need him to flourish. In fact, his rule, it only keeps you down. It's not good, his authority. It's repressive. It's oppressive. It holds you back. It limits your truest and deepest joys. Reject God. And in effect, kill him in your hearts. And live like you're the only God that exists. That's the temptation. That's what Satan was advancing then. That's what the tenants are experiencing now in their hearts. This is the sinister root of all sin. At heart, the most fundamental allegiance comes down to this. Who will I worship? Him or me? And whom will I put my trust? Him or me? Whose words will govern my life? His or my own? This is the question. These questions are the questions that are before every image bearer of God at all times. Who's it going to be? Me or him? And for the believer, right, for those who have received Christ as our Lord, as our authority, we've become convinced, right, that we are quite bad gods. And in fact, we're no gods at all. We were not made, we've become convinced, to be worshipped but to worship. We were dead in sin and trespass, blinded and stuck in the dark, professing to be wise. We became fools and we fell into all kinds of different and destructive outworkings of this foolishness. Yet, even for us, convinced as we are that we are not God, and that he is in fact our highest good and our unending need, as we sang this morning, we still struggle, don't we, to apply this reality to every aspect of our lives. What God has for us and who God is to us, he's always better than anything we could conceive of or any of our attempts to find, even in small ways, joy in replacing him and seeking to elevate the gifts of God above the giver. We are constantly struggling with this temptation. So this text is for us as believers, even as much as it is for those who have not yet come to faith in Christ. We need to be aware of this temptation. We need to be freshly convinced of this and on guard in our own hearts. And to the non-Christian hearing this message today, I, I, I pray that you would receive it as we've already advanced it and as it continues to be developed as a gracious warning to you, a gracious warning that comes through these, this passage as we learn of the fate of these farmers who hang on to that sinful desire, who hang on to that allegiance to self rather than God, who reject the authority of God's Son. Their fate, as we'll see, is the fate of all who reject God and His Son. And for you, my, my, my prayer would be that you would listen in and learn from them and be saved from that today. And so, having concluded that they can kill the son and effectively become the son, the tenants hatch a plot which culminates in the death of the father's beloved. Verse 8 says, they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. They laid their hostile hands upon him, murdered him in, in disgrace. They cast him out of his very own vineyard. And this sad sequence of events it sums up not only Israel's history of rebellion against God, but truly the history of all mankind, right? What is the sum total of human history, Edwards asks, if not an attempt to rid the universe of God? That's what we're after in our rebellion. Wanting the garden, our own Eden, our own paradise without a God to be accountable to. And so the tenants reject 
the son. The tenants put the son to death, seeking to find life in paradise apart from God. And the climax of man's attempt to get rid of God, it comes in what's foretold in this parable. It comes in the crucifixion of Christ, the death of the Son which is foretold, that the Son of Man came unto his own, and his own received him not. But they conspired together, as the authorities have already begun to do, (laughs) as we know. They conspired together to have him killed at the hands of lawless men and cast out of the city, put to death on a criminal's cross. This is the contempt and the disgrace that Christ came to Jerusalem for. And we know why he's come to do it, right? To pay our ransom price. And this is what is now just days away. We know where he's headed. We know what his death will accomplish and what it will achieve. But as we continue on, we press into the emphasis that that's not the end of the story here. And so with the owner's son having been put to death, the question is asked in verse 9, how will the owner respond to this? How will he respond to his son's mistreatment and condemnation? What will the owner do with such wicked tenants? Verse 9 says this, He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Those who reject the son, which is one and the same as rejecting the father, will be destroyed. That's the end of their story. They will face judgment and wrath and be removed from his presence forever. And this is the same judgment. We can't miss this. This isn't isn't just for them. This is the same judgment that awaits every human image bearer of God who denies God in favor of worshiping a God created in their own image and worshiping anything else and worshiping themselves. Jesus indicates that this is the ultimate ending to the authorities' plot, that even as they might try to conspire and gain, they'll in fact lose it all. They will be destroyed when the owner comes to the garden. They wanted to replace God, and they found themselves to be the ones getting replaced. It will be taken from them and given to others. They will be destroyed, and the leadership of God's people will be given away. But how will he destroy them? And this is the question that we end with. How will his judgment be set in motion? And I've already alluded to the final destination, which is their you know, eternal separation from God in hell. That's where the final judgment and the final uh, outcome of this is headed, but in the here and now, as the authorities are hearing Christ's words back in the first century, how is this destruction going to happen? How is this chain of events going to be set in motion? In the here and now, back then in the first century, there were two main events that confirmed the defeat of these rebellious stewards and the arrival of God in judgment, right, in, in the garden. The first was and as we'll see in Mark, the destruction of the temple, the same temple Jesus cleansed last week, he is going to come and destroy within a generation. And if you needed further proof that the temple authorities were getting misplaced, well, they can't go to work anymore because the temple is gone. So he's going to come and destroy the temple, proving that their leadership is done, (laughs) their corrupt system of worship and the institution that they had perverted is no more. Something new has come to take its place. But secondly, and before that, we see that they would be destroyed and defeated through the resurrection of the Son. And this is what is being indicated in the quotation of Psalm um, 118 here. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. Jesus says, they'll be destroyed because haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected sounds like crucifixion, 
sounds like the son being put to death, has become the cornerstone. Sounds like, in some way, that's been overturned. That's been overruled. Something has happened to reverse the rejection, right? The stone that they rejected has become the cornerstone, which is, architecturally speaking, the chief stone, the most prominent and important stone, the stone by which all other stones are set in relation. And Christ has come and said, hey, this temple will be no more, and I'm cleansing it, and there's going to be a new and better one to come. This would certainly allude to that. A new temple is coming with a new cornerstone and a new place to meet with God, governed by new leaders and new authorities who are not you. (laughs) He's what he's saying to them. The Son would come, be rejected and crucified, but then be made the cornerstone. How? That is, through his resurrection. Through his resurrection from the dead, the rejection of man would be overturned. Man's no would be overruled by God's yes. Their condemnation would be replaced with God's justification. They said, he is not the son. He is a blasphemer. And just days time, God would raise him up from the dead and say, he is my son. He is the Messiah. He is the perfect one. He is declared to be totally in the right in my eyes. He would be vindicated, proven to be in the right. And if he's in the right, guess what? They're in the wrong. This would be God's way of proving to them that their destruction was coming. This would seal the deal on their claim to authority when Christ's claims would be vindicated, would be upheld, would be seen to be completely true, as the one they put to death would be raised from the dead. And in this way, he actually, in his death, in his supposed conquering, he defeats them. That's crazy, isn't it? They think if we just get rid of the Son, we we become the Son. But God actually uses his cross as the means to which he will then raise him up and prove them wrong without a shadow of a doubt. Because if he raises him from the dead, well, is it any more in dispute if he is God's son, right? If he dies a criminal's death, right, and he's considered to be accursed, right, like Isaiah says, and he stays in the grave, well, yeah, we can conclude he's a bad guy. He was wrong. He was false. But if God raises him from the dead, is there any question as to whose side God is on in this controversy? (laughs) No. He is on the side of the one who claimed to be the son and has now been declared to be the son. Through his death and through their plan to destroy him, they actually accomplish their own destruction. This is an utter reversal. This life through death, this conquering through defeat. This is why Mark says, this was the Lord's doing. (laughs) Who would have thought this? And it is marvelous in our eyes. His resurrection would prove his authority to do what he's just done in the temple cleansing and it would spell the end of his opponent's would-be authority. This is what's happening here. This is what Christ is looking forward to in just days to come. God would prove there's a new temple in his son and his resurrected body. God would prove that the only leaders who will lead this people are those who are rightly aligned to this son. God would prove for all who would follow after Christ, for us, that resurrection life is the end of every one of our stories regardless of the rejection, regardless of the suffering, regardless of what it is like to live in a world which is hostile toward the Son who came, resurrection is the end for each of us. God is always working through our suffering to raise us up to glory and resurrection life. And all this would be accomplished in just a few days' time. The authorities, they respond to this in verse 12. 
by doubling down on their rejection. It says that they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. <laughs> and so, mission accomplished, the point was achieved, it was clear to them, hey, he's talking about us. And the only reason they don't seize him then is because the people are there and it might not work out so well, but we'll just have to continue conspiring and planning and try to put him away otherwise. We're still going to press on with this, and as we press on toward this, they're nail, uh, putting the final nail in their own coffin and putting the son to death and rejecting that stone. He is on his way toward becoming the cornerstone. And that's what's happening here. And that's what it meant for them then. But for us now, as we conclude our time together hearing the preaching of the word this morning, three considerations for us as we respond. They responded to this parable by doubling down in rejection. They responded by rushing headlong toward the destruction Christ warned them was coming. So for us, three ways we can respond today. One, for those who are not Christians this morning, and I've said this once, but I'll say it again and I'll keep saying it. See the fate that awaits all those who reject the Son of God. Don't carry on in your rejection of Jesus like they did, because it won't end for you in any other place than destruction, any other place than it would go for them. This is a gracious opportunity to stop living a God-rejecting, God-getting-rid-of, God-replacing life, and to turn to find life in God. Christ offers himself to you. He has paid the punishment for all, uh, your sin of God rejecting upon his cross, and he welcomes you <laughs> into God's family. He welcomes you back into the garden where you can find true and lasting joy. Repent and believe in Jesus today. Number two, for those who are being baptized today, and those of us who have all been baptized already, I, I would encourage you to see your baptism in this parable. See your baptism in this parable. And what I mean by this is that as we've seen Christ's story of rejection and vindication, we should see our baptism as a participation in this, as a participation in Christ's rejection and his vindication. In baptism, we signify our union with him in his death, that is the rejection of the stone, and in his resurrection, the vindication of the cornerstone. And so to those being baptized today, consider this. You have died with Christ. And your baptism, it seals the deal on this. It's the, the headstone, right, of your old way of life. And in that sort of way, it's a rejection, right? And in baptism, we actually come and say, I reject that old life, that old man, that old woman, that old way of dishonoring God and rejecting him. I reject that. God is putting that to an end in baptism. That person is dying, and now a new person will come out of that rejection of that old way of living and be raised up and vindicated and shown to be what we weren't before, which was an, an enemy. But now, through baptism, we die to that old way of life and are raised to a new life in which we are pronounced to be like Jesus, sons and daughters of God. See your baptism in this parable. As you reflect on your own baptism and as we celebrate them today, see that rejection and vindication. See that dying and that rising, the end of an old way of life and the entrance into a new life forever with God, declared to be, without a doubt, his child. See that in your baptism. And finally, for every believer hearing this today, one final takeaway for us is that God's people, this parable indicates, are 
let me say emphatically, God's people. (laughs) The parable makes this clear, right? The parable of the vineyard shows us that any leaders over God's people are not ultimate but delegated authorities. Um, And for us today, as we read this parable, we're reminded that the church belongs to God, which should go without saying, but it's so true. This is Christ's church. This is God's people. The church that's expressed here at Cross of Grace is not the church of Kyle or Jeff or Jason, praise God for that, but it's the church of God. And its head is the one he set over it, Jesus Christ. And what's encouraging about this is that as we see the parable unfold and see all of the unfaithfulness and all the weakness and all the imperfection in God's people, what does God not do? He doesn't destroy them, but he preserves them and he protects them. Yes, he gets rid of the bad leaders and the bad shepherds, but he preserves his people. And what does this tell us? That the preservation of our own church, of Cross of Grace Santa Ana, ultimately is not dependent upon the worthiness of our leaders. It's not dependent upon the worthiness or the faithfulness or the competence of men, but on the faithfulness of God. That's good news. In spite of how we know there's much grace here, we also know there's still room for growth. There's weakness. There's struggling. There's a proneness that we all have, leaders and members of this congregation, toward unfaithfulness, toward sinfulness, toward falling short of what God would have for us, but we're encouraged that God will not give up on us because this is his people. You are his vineyard, and he is committed to preserving you for the sake of his glory, and this gives us confidence that we can be the next hundred-year church in Santa Ana because it's based on his faithfulness. And as we go out today, would his faithfulness toward us fuel our faithfulness to him? Amen? Faithful to the one who did not abandon his own son to death, but raised him up to indestructible life. Faithful to the one who's proven himself beyond a shadow of a doubt to be committed to his people and to give resurrection life that's promised in the gospel. Faithful to the risen Savior who suffered for our sins and was raised to secure our place in God's garden forever. Let's pray. Lord, oh, Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that we might be encouraged with a risen and living hope by your Son, that you did not abandon him to death, but you raised him. You vindicated him. You proved him to be exactly who he said he was, such that we can place our faith in him with confident assurance. Would you send us out freshly fueled and assured in the goodness of the gospel, celebrating our risen Savior? We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.